If you go to a carol service of the traditional type, often the first reading from the Bible is not from the accounts of Jesus being born, but is from 700 years earlier. It's the prophecy of Isaiah. And as it's nearly Christmas, let's hear from that now. Let's turn again to Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. Page numbers are on the yellow sheet. And it's Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. It's a prophecy of Jesus being born. But in a world full of troubles, should we really be giving time to a nice story about a baby being born in a stable? We're we're in a world full of troubles. We've got big worries about the future of the planet. Are we killing off species and making life unbearable for future generations? We've got worries about international relations, whether it's Putin's Russia or Syrian war or Islamic terrorism or nuclear weapons in Iran or North Korea. We've got worries at home. The future of health care and social care. Breakdown of families. Rise of knife crime. And I won't carry on, although there's an awful lot more that could be said about the troubles because I'm not here to depress you, but it is a troubled world with big problems. Spending time on a baby born in a stable 2,000 years ago seems rather pathetic. Okay, it's a nice story for the children, a heartwarming tradition, but not for the big problems of this troubled world. Well, I want to answer that this morning from Isaiah chapter 9. And to do so, we'll have to look beyond that verse 6. We need to see what was happening then. So let's begin with that. First of all this morning, troubles like ours in chapters 1 to 8. I'm not going to, there's so much material in chapters 1 to 8, I'm not going to point out specific verses. I'm afraid you'll have to take my word for what's there in chapters 1 to 8. They back then had environmental problems too. Chapter 1 and chapter 5 and chapter 7 describe their agricultural fields and their vineyards being laid waste and getting taken over by wilderness. Today we have agricultural areas taken over by deserts. Then they had to, taken over by wilderness. Those chapters describe an agricultural community suffering from difficulties with the environment. They had international relations problems too. Isaiah, this book that we're looking at, was written to a tiny country called Judah. And it was threatened by its bigger neighbour, Israel, much bigger country to the north of it. Now, they'd once been one country, united, but they'd split long ago, and bigger Israel was threatening to invade little Judah that felt rather defenceless. Then north of Israel was even bigger Syria that was also threatening them. And so Judah went into alliance with yet bigger Assyria. Sorry, that's a bit muddling. There's Syria and Assyria. 
There's little Judah, it's threatened by bigger Israel and by yet bigger Syria. So they go into alliance with yet bigger Assyria. Let's get the local superpower on our side. They paid them protection money they could ill afford. And it was a disastrous policy because Assyria ended up invading Judah and laying waste to it. If you go into the British Museum in in London, you can see the Assyrian records of the cruelties they inflicted on Judah. You see, the Bible's real history. They had environmental problems. They had international relations problems. They had worries at home. Chapter 1 of Isaiah describes the capital city, Jerusalem, as a place of corruption and bribery and violence. Chapter 3 describes the ruling elite prancing around in their fancy clothes, feeling so pleased with themselves, despising anyone outside their echo chambers, grinding the faces of the poor, and it describes a a generational conflict between the young and the old. Does any of that sound familiar to us? And in all this trouble, where did they turn to for advice and guidance? Let's have a look at chapter 8. I will point out some verses. Because they're right before our chapter. Chapter 8, verse 19. In all these troubles, where did they turn to for advice, for guidance, for leadership? Chapter 8, verse 19. When men tell you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn distressed and hungry. They will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged and looking upward will curse their king and their God. Then they will look towards the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom and they will be thrust into utter darkness. must admit they're not the easiest of verses to understand, but it's saying they turn to the occult. They didn't know what to do in all their troubles, so they turned to the occult. Can we get some guidance from these people in touch with spiritual powers? And it's saying the result was darkness, stumbling around like a person in the dark. In our society, where do people turn to in all their troubles? Well, all sorts of answers. I'll give you two. Here's one. Have you looked at the spirituality section in Waterstone's bookshop? Strange things there. You see that people will believe in crystals that have some sort of power, the power within them, horoscopes, that tend to almost anything, it seems, for guidance, and they end up stumbling in darkness. Here's another example. Young people need a guide as they grow up. Where can they find one? Well, the BBC provides one. The BBC Three website. I don't recommend you look at it. It's written by people who think that sex is just a recreational activity. It's written by people who can't give you a definition of the word woman. It's written by people who think a man can marry a man. Stumbling around in darkness. Like the people in Isaiah 8, we are stumbling around in darkness as a society. And so the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9, to us a child is born, was written to people experiencing troubles very similar to ours. Troubles that will be ended. So let's move into Isaiah 9 now. 
chapter 9 and find that they are troubles that will be ended. How does chapter 8 end? What are the last two words of chapter 8? Chapter 8 ends with utter darkness. But chapter 9 begins with, there will be no more gloom. The darkness will be lifted. Why? Verse 2. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. There's going to be a light. And so we get celebration in verse 3. You've enlarged the nation and increased their joy. And it describes the two best examples of celebration in that sort of society. When you've got the harvest in and when you've defeated an enemy. It says it's going to be that sort of celebration. What's caused the celebration? Verse 4. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. The troubles have been ended. The enemies have been done away with. How? How does that happen? Well, verse 6 begins with four. In other words, because. Here's how it all happens. Verse 6, four, because to us a child is born. To us a son is given. The baby born in Bethlehem is going to end their troubles. Think about it. They have got troubles that are environmental, that are economic. I didn't go over that one, but they've got all sorts of economic troubles. They've got troubles in the realms of international relations. They've got a society plagued by corruption and violence. And yet the answer given is not a new invention. Is not an economic boom, is not more policemen, is not the United Nations, isn't better health care. The answer given is a baby who will be born 700 years later. Now, what is that telling you? It's telling you that they and we need the underlying cause of the troubles dealt with. The underlying cause is what needs to be dealt with. You see, if God just got rid of the threat from Israel and Syria, they'd still have Assyria threatening them. If God got rid of Assyria, well, a few years later, they're going to have Babylon, the next superpower, invading them. If God got rid of their bad king Ahaz and his corrupt elite, well, a few years later, they'll have another bad king and his corrupt elite. These troubles are symptoms of something deeper. So many of our efforts to make life better and to deal with the problem are just dealing with the symptoms, not the cause. It's a bit like this. It's like taking paracetamol for a headache. Is that a good idea? Well, yes, it is a good idea. Paracetamol tends to get rid of headaches most of the time. It gives some help. But if the headache is because you've got a brain tumour, or the paracetamol gives some relief, I'm not saying it's no good, but you need more than a paracetamol. You need the underlying cause dealt with radically. And so our efforts to deal with the troubles of this life, they are not useless. They do some good, but they don't get to the underlying cause. The repeated persistent message of this prophecy of Isaiah is behind these problems was a deeper one. What was it? Their relationship with God was wrong. That 
was behind it all. Their relationship with God was wrong. They turned their backs on God and he was judging them. He was punishing. The Bible teaches a God who actively judges and punishes. It's not just there happen to be consequences to bad stuff we do. It says God is king and he actively judges and punishes. If you don't believe that, you've wiped out an awful lot of the Bible. And we've also turned our backs on God and he's judging us. Now that doesn't mean people in Syria bombed out of their homes are worse than people living comfortably in Loughborough. It doesn't mean if you get cancer it's a judgment for some particular sin you must have done. It means we, each of us, are sinners individually. And we're part of a human race that is sinful. And God is not a laid-back, indulgent uncle. He's cursed this world. And we live in a world suffering from our sin and God's reaction to our sin. The underlying cause of the troubles is our relationship with God has gone wrong. And because that's the cause, the symptoms are with us long term. Now, Isaiah, think about who Isaiah was written to, these troubled people in Judah, and they're given good news in verse 6. To us a child is born, great news, there's a child going to come. But when will the child be born? 700 years later. 700 years, think of that. What was 700 years ago? 1300 and something. It's an awfully long time ago. 700 years later, they've got a long way to head. We need to be realistic about waiting for God to remove the troubles of this world. I was once watching a programme about some terrible event in history. I think it was the Japanese occupation of Nanking in China in the 1930s. And it got me praying, praying it wouldn't happen again. And I thought, why... It wouldn't happen again. Of course it will. I remember, well, there was Cambodia and Vietnam and Rwanda and Kosovo. And on we could go. These things keep on happening. And realistically, they will keep on happening. doesn't mean we shouldn't try to stop them, but they will keep happening. And so I prayed, come Lord Jesus. They're going to keep on happening until he comes and removes all of the sin. Its symptoms won't go away until then. There are things we can improve. Medical advance has lengthened lives, but it hasn't abolished death. Economic advance has given people more comfortable retirements, but it hasn't stopped dementia. Our paracetamol have improved some of the headaches and taken them away. But we haven't got right the underlying cause. Our relationship with God has gone wrong. And that means when we're considering the problems of our lives and of this world, we need to go deeper and aim higher. So often we're just dealing with the symptoms. We need to go deeper and we need to aim higher. We need to go deeper, not just the surface problem, but the underlying cause. And we need to aim higher. Our problem isn't we aim too high. Oh, I want to get a better income. I want to be healthy. I want to have a nicer house. I want to live in a, live in a peaceful community. Those aims aren't too high. Now, our problem is we aim too low. Our aim should be the relationship with God put right. And this world made new with all the troubles gone. 
Did you see there was a news item last week about dementia on the BBC? And there were a, a couple of women interviewed who were caring for their husbands with dementia. It was very sad. Seeing the state these men were in and hearing the struggles their wives were having with them. And one of the women commented, I'm not getting the retirement I expected. Now, our response should be to sympathise. Our response should be to see how hard that was for her. Our response should be to want her to get all the help she could get. But our response should also be realistic. The difficulty of caring with someone for someone with dementia is not going to be solved quickly. But it's not that her aim of a comfortable retirement was too high. She didn't have her expectations too high. She had them too low. Because the aim should be, not a comfortable retirement for the next few years, but a life eternal with Jesus, the most loving man ever. We're in a world full of troubles. A lot of them are not going to be solved before Jesus comes back. We need to go deeper and we need to aim higher. And that can only be done because of the baby born in a stable. So let's move on now. How does this baby do it? Let's move on to verse 6. How does this baby deal with the troubles? Isaiah's taken us from deep troubles in chapters 1 to 8 to them being ended in chapter 9. And he says it's all because of who this baby is in verse 6. Who he is, is the key to it all. And who he is in verse 6 is being contrasted with the bad king they had back then. Because we're not living back then, we might not see that straight away. But it's being contrasted with the bad king they had. Judah was under a bad king called Ahaz. Ahaz was a fool who listened to bad advisers and got wrong what to do. But this promised king would be the wonderful counsellor. Ahaz was weak and he couldn't implement his policies. He failed to do them. But this promised king would be the mighty God. Ahaz did not protect and provide for the nation. He was like, sadly, so many kings, grasping for himself. And he'd soon be dead and out of the way. But this promised king is the everlasting father. Ahaz's policy of an alliance with Assyria was a disaster and war soon erupted. But this promised king, he's the prince of peace. Do you see the contrast? They're being told, you're suffering under this Ahaz, but there's going to be another king. By the way, 700 years wait, but there's going to be a better king. Now, these names are more than just words. They're more than just a nice idea to make people feel a bit better. The promised king, Jesus, would do them. Well, we can say he has done them. Let's have a look at these names again. Wise, uh, Wonderful counsellor. Wonderful counsellor means someone with supernatural wisdom. Wonderful means it's to be wondered at because it's beyond the natural. It's supernatural. And Jesus came to earth with a supernatural plan, a wonderful plan. A way that God could uphold justice and forgive the guilty. A way for God who hates sin to be reconciled with people who love sin. It was a wise plan, a wonderful plan. 
An amazing plan no one else would think of because it was a plan for God to become flesh and to take on man's sins and to die in man's place and to take our punishment for us. He's a wonderful counsellor. But it was a hard plan. An impossible plan for anyone else to do. It's all very well having a good plan, but a king needs to have power to put it into practice. We've just had two years of government with a plan, haven't we? Now, there's probably a lot of disagreement in this room about whether it was a good or a bad plan. But I think we can all agree they didn't have power to implement it. Couldn't even get it through Parliament, let alone put it into practice. A weak government, whatever its plan, can't do it. But Jesus is the mighty God. He's got the power, the power to become man, and then to live a life of hardship without once falling for temptation. He's got the power to go to Jerusalem, a city still in the grip of corruption and violence, and to go through a trial that was unjust, without speaking out and exposing it. He's got the power to hang on a cross and to suffer the anguish of God's wrath against sin. He's got the power to overcome death and burst out of the grave. Now that doesn't just take power, it also takes love. It takes care for others. But Jesus has got that too, because what's the next name? He's the everlasting Father. Now, that doesn't mean muddle him up with God the Father. God the Son and God the Father are two different persons. It means Jesus has fatherly care for his people. He had it when he died for us. And fellow Christian, he still has it for you now. He still has fatherly care for you today and tomorrow. And still, a hundred years into heaven, he'll still have fatherly care for you. Because he's the everlasting father and this is the way that Jesus has mended the relationship between God and us he's reconciled us to God so we can say whatever happens to us if God is for us who can be against us you see we have peace peace brought to us by what's the last name the prince of peace That's how the baby in the stable mends the troubles. He goes deeper, right down to the bottom cause of it all. Our relationship with God is broken and he aims higher. He takes us to something better than any of our attempts can. But is it peace on earth? Is it peace on earth? We're going to move now into verse 7. Is this peace on earth? Does this really deal with the world's troubles or have I just described a psychological peace? People feeling at peace because they believe God's forgiven them and that's nice, that makes them feel better, but it's all just psychological. In the year 2000, the band U2 produced a song, Peace on Earth. And it has this great line in it, we hear it every Christmas time, but hope and history don't rhyme. So what's it worth? this peace on earth, and they almost spit the words out, peace on earth. It was after the Omar bombings in Northern Ireland where many people were killed by the IRA. Hope and history don't rhyme. What's it worth, this peace on earth? But verse 7, verse 7 says hope and history do rhyme. 
Because the rule of Jesus is going to keep on increasing. Verse 7, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Spreading his peace around the world. As more and more people bow to Jesus and come under his fatherly care. They discover peace with God and become peacemakers. They're ruled by Jesus, who instead of grasping gave, they become people who instead of grasping give. The love of God is poured out into their hearts, and so they love because he first loved them. As people come under the rule of Jesus, they become people of peace. I hope that describes us. I should have just described us. I hope I've described you. You know, when missionaries first went to the Pacific Islands in the 18th and 19th centuries, they had very short life expectancies because they're often killed by the locals, even eaten by cannibals. But did you know that now there's an increase in the number of Christians in the British Army because the British Army are recruiting from those Pacific Islands? And they're getting people of, well, it's a bit funny, people of peace joining the British Army. But I think you could be a person of peace and in the British Army. Because God has worked and saved people there. Do you know there's a corner of northwest India that's rather different from most of India? It's a place called Nagaland. And the people there are not Hindus and they're not Muslims, they're Christians. But they used to be headhunters. They used to be killing each other and collecting each other's heads as trophies. But they came under the rule of the Prince of Peace and they've been changed. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end because the message of Jesus is spreading around the world and he's making people peacemakers. I hope I'm describing us. We should be peacemakers. Now, these days, if people disagree with you, they sometimes say, you're on the wrong side of history. I find it a really annoying phrase because it's one of these ones that avoids having a decent argument with you. It just says, you're on the wrong side of history. I suppose they mean you're backward, and progress is moving away from you, and your beliefs will soon die out. And many people think Christianity is on the wrong side of history. But actually, it is growing worldwide more than ever before. Now is a good time for worldwide Christianity. And Isaiah 9 verse 7 says, expect that. Expect that because of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Until verse 5 literally happens. Until verse 5 literally happens. And I mean literally in the proper way. We had a school trip to the church here, and uh, I was talking to one of the teachers about the misuse of the word literally. And then a few minutes later she said, these children take literally forever to go to the toilet. (laughs) I really mean literally. Verse 5 is literally going to happen. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. What's going on there? It's saying all the equipment of war is going to be destroyed because it won't be needed anymore. There'll be no need for warrior's boots. There'll be no need for spears. There'll be no need for nuclear weapons. There'll be no need for preventative measures. Because Jesus is going to return and there is going to be peace. Do you know our church Christmas card hasn't quite got it right on this? 
sorry to criticise our church Christmas card, hasn't quite got it right because it says Jesus doesn't offer world peace as we often think of it. Now, I know what's meant, and I think it is basically right, but he does offer world peace as we often think of it. When he returns, when he returns, hope and history do rhyme because I hope it's not too cheesy to say it, but it is his story. It is 2019 AD, the year of our Lord, and his government and peace are still increasing while we wait for him to return. So, are you confident we've got the good news that people need? I hope you are. I hope you are because we have got the good news that people need. We have the only news good enough for this troubled world. We have a book that is right up to date and takes seriously the problems that we face. It goes deeper and it aims higher than any other solution. Are you confident in the good news? It is good news. It makes sense and it's wise because it's from the wonderful counsellor. It's powerful and it works because it's from the mighty God. It's loving and it's kind because it's from the everlasting Father. It brings peace. Peace with God, the peace of God. People who are peacemakers and eventually world peace in every sense because it's from the Prince of Peace. Are you confident in this good news? Are you confident in him?